This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we'll discuss the issues at two London Premier League clubs. Pressure on Antonio Conte after a poor run of form, and the same two for Graham Potter and Chelsea. How do they turn things around, and how are their personalities affecting how they run their football clubs? We'll also be talking about things towards the bottom of the table, a pressure-relieving point for Everton. We'll also be talking about Southampton's chances of survival and an important draw for Nottingham Forest, of course. And we'll also talk about that title race, Manchester City dropping points as Arsenal extend their lead. This is the game. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome back to the Game Podcast. Uh, I am Hugh Wisencroft alongside Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. Happy New Year, guys. Hope you uh, had a great Hogmanay, Gregor. Is that what it's called? It is, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a washout in Edinburgh. <laughs> That's what I heard from my, my friends back home. And it was a bit of a washout for me too. I was in bed. <laughs> well, yeah, Happy New Year. I mean, we, we tried to be positive about Christmas, didn't we? We were sort of miserable <laughs> scrooges on that one. Alison, please tell me you had a very Happy New Year. Of course, I'm always upbeat and sparkly, as I'm sure you know. Mine was pretty good. I managed to get myself a very early dinner booking, which was done on the 31st, so I couldn't... Uh, get a time slot other than about 6pm but I did manage to make it through in a pub until midnight just by the river and, and run out to see some fireworks and then escape home on the tube straight afterwards so I can say along with my partner we had a very happy new year and hopefully everyone did as well hopefully your team uh, on new year's day at least um, gave you the opportunity to smile as well and gave you a happy new year because um, for some fans it, it wasn't that we know it wasn't that and we've got to start with maybe the most upset group of fans. Sorry, maybe not a happy new year. Tottenham supporters out of the Premier League's top four after their 2-0 defeat by Aston Villa and also setting a pretty unwanted club record. They've now conceded at least two goals in seven successive Premier League fixtures, which is quite stunning for an Antonio Conte team. Spurs as well only had two shots on target in the game. Fans were chanting, Daniel Levy, get out of our club at their chairman. It's now two wins in seven in the Premier League. They've got a trip to Crystal Palace next. But basically, Tottenham aren't good enough. And Antonio Conte said afterwards that basically the expectation's too high, or at least it has been so far this season. He says, um, you have to know that there are clubs that can invest £200 million. You have to respect their quality. 
it has been very clear otherwise that we create expectation that's not positive for the environment to create expectation which at this moment is not realistic and i knew i know very well and i was expecting this moment he went on to say that basically anyone that thought tottenham were going to win the premier league were dreaming which no one wants to hear i'm sure tottenham fans don't want to hear i think all football fans would think with a dose of reality it would have been very very difficult for tottenham to win the Premier League, but this is deflection because we we know that they're good enough to, I'm not going to say be in the title race, but the record that I've just pointed out there is subpar. And I think Antonio Conte is deflecting from his team's poor performances and his poor performance as a manager because he loves to talk as if he's one of the best in the world. We can argue whether he is or he isn't, but at this point in time, his team is certainly not. So I wonder how much he's deflecting Alisson away from the reality of how bad his team's been. I was at the um, the 2-2 against Brentford, where yet again Spurs conceded first. I mean, it's now, it's now, they conceded first 10 times in a row. That was at Brentford, it was nine times in a row. And they went 2-0 down and managed to get a point out of the game. And um, when he was asked about this strange tendency to almost not bother playing until there's a you know a crisis until the alarm bells ring until there's a siren sounding he sort of conte sort of looked highly amused and like it was something uh, that was happening external to him not happening to him which seems to me really odd because there are certain things you can't control as a manager um can't control who will get injured you can't control who you bring in and how you shape the team to absorb an injury for example but that the attitude of the team, their passivity, um, is down. Has, I mean, that is the one thing really that is down to the coaching staff. So I felt that it was always going to run dry. This well of ability to pick themselves up after a bad start. You know, like if you were a, a comic and you get people shouting at you, heckling you, and you come up every time you come up with a good put down, and you get the the audience back on side there'll come a point when you're just tired of being heckled. You don't come up with the clever put down and the crowd aren't on your side and you don't recover and your performance falls flat. And it was going to happen and it did happen against Aston Villa. And for it to happen at home against a team with uh, myriad problems, but a new manager who, who who came in knowing he had to change an attitude. I mean, that's that's what would annoy me if I was a Spurs fan. would be, hang on, this has happened a manager's come in and he's still new, Emery's still new, and yet he's managed to inject a new attitude into this Aston Villa team. They're not new players. It's not It's not a completely different team. It's a team with a different approach. And yet Conte has, has had 10 games in which to solve this ridiculous inability to play football for 90 minutes. And so I agree with you, Hugh, in that he, he does have a very uh, clever tendency to make it seem that things are happening to him and happening to the club but a lot of those things not all of them but a lot of those things are due due to him and his his manner of coaching and just it's it can't all be someone else's fault it's not new is it either you know this is something that Conte has has done repeatedly anytime they're sort of Spurs are hitting a sticky patch this is the kind of spiel that we hear but Alice is absolutely right you look at Actually, in the last seven Premier League games, they've conceded two or more goals. 
that's a failure of a lot of things. <laughs> and one of them is the manager uh, and, and his coaching and the way that he's setting his, his team out. So he can def- it is a deflection tactic and it's a kind of, it seemed to be kind of a myriad of messages. It was, you know, a message to the players, it's a message to Daniel Levy and the board that he wants to, he expects to be able to spend big money again in January. And it's a message to the fans. And it's also kind of, as Alison says, raising himself above all of that and sort of overseeing it and saying, I'm here, this is the this is the truth. Uh, this is the, the situation as I see it. And if you want to come and join me up here, then this is what we've got to do. But as I say, this isn't new and it's not unexpected. It's just probably going to be well, undoubtedly, it's getting pretty grating for the supporters. And I think if you're a player in the dressing room too, hearing that kind of negativity, it, it would be, be a bit dispirit for them as well. I think in terms of managerial solutions, that's my issue. I think, you know, there's bad results for so many clubs. The managers come out and basically say, you know, we've got to work on X, Y and Z. And, and, and I know Antonio Conte does that, but there's always this these words about investment about the bigger picture about where the club is going about the next window we need to make sure that we you know we can get in the market and then there's always the comments about how much money other teams are spending and you kind of want to look at it and go but you are still the Spurs manager it is still your job to get the best out of Tottenham Hotspur and you're not doing that it can't always be that we're just waiting for the next window to invest in more players so that we can catch up and then in the interim, it's like the results don't matter. Like, I honestly don't believe Antonio Conte will be there next season because I just don't think that he's going to get the amount of investment and the kind of players that he needs to get to the point where Tottenham Hotspur do challenge. Don't you think they've got a good squad, though? I, I mean, do. It used, to, it, used to be, it used to be when Spurs played well, it was because Kane and Son were just simply a devastating attacking pair and, and would trouble anybody, any defence, anywhere, when they clicked, and they would often click. And then they added Kulisevsky, and they became a triumvirate who were like, oh, my goodness, even if they're only like at 70%, the three of them, wow, this is good, this is good stuff. And they've got enough intelligent players behind them to find them. And when they don't find them, you've got Kane dropping deep to find one of them. It was really good. And I know Kulisevsky not, was not available, but it, it's like... That the focus was on that, whereas actually they still had, I still think, oh my goodness, that was, there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot of talent there. But really, is there I the depth? Is, is there the depth over 38 games, injuries, rotation? Is, is there enough in that Spurs squad? Well, there's enough compared to Arsenal's squad, I would say, not compared to Manchester City's. But I mean, who's leading the table? I think I think who's leading the table is a squad of comparable depth. I would say it's also a nonsense to to suggest that the top four shouldn't be a realistic target. Well, that's really what he did in his comments uh, yesterday. You, you know, you've got yeah, you've got to be fair. And and Kulisewski's a big miss. We've said that in all the the spells that he's been injured. Benton Coeur, you know, we gushed over during the World Cup and expect we expect him to come back and be a big player for Spurs and he's out for a little while. And Richarlison's not, you know, wasn't available either. So that's, that's three big players and three players they invested a lot of money in. So that's, that, in fairness, any team would miss them. But but, but it still su- counts to, as depth, doesn't it? Doesn't of course. It? Cool. And to suggest, that, <laughs> to suggest that you're not, that the players that he has available at his disposal just now aren't capable of challenging, at least for the top four, is, is ludicrous and that's that's why what Hughes says is true it's, it's a, a deflection tactic and it's he, he, you know he said it was a miracle what they achieved last season it wasn't a miracle it was a it was 
it was an impressive achievement. But there's no reason why Spurs shouldn't be able to do that again with a stronger squad than last season. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I'll be perfectly honest. Um, it's the style of play. You know, it's the things that, that Conte is famous for that this Spurs squad doesn't do. Like, it's, it's clearly an underperformance on his part and he will know that in terms of what he expects from his side and yeah some of his players I do think that if you constantly talk about transfers being the answer you will demotivate your squad that's number one thing you can't I mean just constantly saying new players are the answer but why are you expecting these players to now deliver for you like you might as well you know just put a sticker on their foreheads not good enough rubbish crap whatever it might be like you're you're making a very outward sign that you don't rate the players that you have, or at least n- not all of them. I mean, I don't even know what areas really... Look, Tottenham could be stronger in every area if we're talking about compared to the the best sides in football. But at this point in time, all right, maybe a centre-half, good, right wing-back, definitely. A, central, a creative central midfielder, yeah, I was going to say that's what Antonio Conte himself wants. That's the key area for you. Well, that kind of pairing just doesn't seem to be working. Hoiberg and Basuma, they drop very deep. And, you know, there's a, there's a period where early in the season, and, and in fact, last season too, I was I remember saying that, that they looked like they had the, the back three and then those two in front. It, was, it seemed like a really difficult block to break down. And they, they were content to defend so deep, you know, almost inside their box at times. And sometimes they'd be suckered by a you know, long-distance goal or whatever, but that's, that was fairly rare. Now they don't really look, even look as compact. So I, something about that's not working. Often, you know, earlier in the season, supporters were calling for an extra man in midfield and obviously Benton Coor's not there, but Skip was a, was available and came on yesterday. I, I just don't think they're kind of covering space enough there. And Basuma's, Basuma's had some good games and he's not, he's not really hit the heights, I don't think, since he, since he joined from, uh, from Brighton. So I would say a midfielder too, but definitely a central defender. And if you're, you know, if you're conceding two goals a game, then that's, that's quite clear. And look, we have to say again, Lloris made a a bit of a howler for, for the first goal. So yeah, there's certainly certainly areas to improve, but it's got to be players that are coming and improve the starting eleven. Just just to go back to the you know what Conte is responsible for and what he isn't, I I, I think what's really really telling is this this run they had of not playing until they were behind actually undermines him because what it says is they're not very good at playing cautious containing grown-up football but the minute the shackles are off and they have no choice but to revert to something a bit more swashbuckling they can pull it off and the fact that Conte has distanced himself from that pattern implies that there's there's the team on the one hand, and there's a coach on the other hand. And when they go out onto the pitch, it's not translating. What he wants is not translating because no manager, no manager sends their team out to go behind and then scrap for a draw or a win. It's clearly his vision of what they should be doing is not what's happening, which given he's not, didn't arrive four weeks ago. I mean, this is, I find that really strange. It's as though they have a, they revert to type, revert to what they would feel more comfortable being and what the lineup promises you, as opposed to trying to impose a characteristic that just isn't there. No, again, I I agree. I just, um, there are so many issues, but for me, I think Antonio Conte's rhetoric 
is the saddest thing because you hear fans chanting against Daniel Levy and you kind of think, well, there's been a lot of investment recently. He's brought Antonio Conte to the club. The stadium's magnificent. Training ground too. They're going in the right direction. The football's just not. I mean, how much can he meticulously be responsible for? You know, he's he's brought in a world-class coach. The football isn't better. The team's not better. So again, it's the answer seems to be go to the transfer window. Otherwise, why are you screaming his name? But ultimately, I, I don't know. I'm not saying they've done enough. They can do more. Every club can do more. And I'm, maybe he will, maybe he won't in, in January. But um, I think that the fans, I, I wonder, you know, is there a little bit of content right in terms of our expectations too high? I don't know how many. I don't know how many Tottenham fans really think they were going to win the league. To be perfectly honest, I mean, to be honest, thinking back to the start of the season, there were some that thought it was possible to be in a title race, but knew how tough it would be. But I don't think any are sitting around saying, "Why aren't we top of the league?" Maybe I'm wrong on that. Alison, how are the Tottenham fans right to feel aggrieved? Is the level of anger right now appropriate? Well, as a, I think there's a childishness to it. They think they have a right to win the league because Arsenal are doing that. And they don't, you know, that's the the yardstick for them. Hang, you know, hang on a minute. <laughs> how come how come Arsenal have got there and we haven't got there? That, so that's that's where the unrealistic expectation comes from because it's that because of that depth of rivalry, and also there is a sense that I think there's a sense that Arsenal have got their virtue of solid backing of a good coach and who's been backed and did good business in the window and so everything everything all the negativity is heightened because of that but I mean fans they lose patience after a while and it's the story's the same I mean how it unfolds is different but the outcome's the same all the time for Spurs isn't it that they can't they get close but can't pull it off, or they don't get close and don't pull it off. There's this relentlessness to it. You know, uh, on the one hand, we've got Harry Kane, who everyone says is amazing, but we don't, we don't do anything. It's like everyone loves Son, but he might well have peaked now, Son, I think. I mean, I'm I'm one of his biggest fans. I mean, everyone loves him, but he's. I've never seen him look as unhappy as he did against Aston Villa. So I think if I was a Spurs fan, I'd be slightly panicked that maybe the moment's gone. And this relentlessness of not being able to play properly for 90 minutes is really going to hit them. And they're not going to pick up and they're, you know, they'll, they'll be lucky to finish in the Europa League places. That's, I, so, I mean, that's why they feel the way they, they feel aggrieved. It may or may not be realistic, but I mean, I don't think fans operate totally on realism a lot of it is to do with resentment jealousy emotion and just just getting just just being tired of the same old same old they were supposed to be able to put up with less attractive football under Conte because Conte is a winner and Conte would come in and reshape the team and give them that that sort of that ingredient they were missing that ability to get over the line to win tricky games um and, and and be consistent, but it's not happened. So they are mostly jealous, but also slightly, they're also worried and they're tired of the same thing happening. The cold truth is there are six clubs now who expect to be in the top four. 
and Spurs are one of them. And look, Newcastle will be the seventh. They don't expect it yet, but they, they soon will. And I have to say, you know, watching Aston Villa improve and the investment that they're going to have going forward too, I think they'll soon be an eighth who think they should should be competing for the top four. So there's going to be a lot of disappointed clubs and disappointed fans out there in the coming coming seasons. And I, Alison hit the nail on the head there. The, 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 the biggest issue is Conte... The whole the, the whole thing the whole way they were sold Conte is that he's a winner and yes you know even if it's not the most attractive football even if it's reactive rather than kind of swashbuckling it'll be worth it in the end because he's a winner and he'll he'll take them closer and closer to the to the Premier League title and it's not really working out that way so far. What about Aston Villa then, Gregor? Uh, three wins out of four for Unai Emery, yeah, an, another good display. But um, as Alison pointed out, it's it's just is it the difference? I think my major concern when Emery went to, to Villa in terms of his career was, did he have a group of fully committed players? Because I think at all the clubs he's been a big success at, you know, the, the players have been willing to, to really carry out his tactics with total commitment. And I wasn't sure the Villa players would rise to that. But actually, watching this game, there is an added layer of intensity to Aston Villa under Unai Emery, it seems. And that is the reason that they're, they're getting results like this, I think. But, um, but what did you make of them? Really, really impressive. I mean, it's been a very impressive impact since Emery's come. He's beaten Manchester United, Brighton, Spurs, rang Liverpool very close. All the things they're almost like they almost played like you expect Spurs to play, and that they, they, you know, they were compact. They were willing to to cede possession. I think they had about forty percent of the ball, and they were a real threat on the break. And they, but they all just how compact they were in the close space, and it was you know John McGinn played a sort of on the right bit. But very narrow. Buendia on the left, but the, but the same, but also kind of drifting into to be a kind of number ten. And they were just very hard to break to break down, uh, and a real threat on the break with with the pace of Watkins and and Bailey. So absolutely, it's been it's been a hugely impressive uh, start. And I think I think that Aston Villa are going to be another club that will you know they they will have the backing. They've got a coach now who. As you say, if he's getting the buy-in from his players, from his from the squad at his disposal, it's clearly a you know a very astute tactician, and so far it's been a really good fit. So um, Aston Villa should have you know high hopes for twenty twenty three. I think. Happy for Unai, Alison. I am actually. I think he. Uh, I think he was ridiculed probably too much when he was at Arsenal and came at the wrong time. It timing is everything, isn't it? I. For example, the Spurs fans were ready for Conte, even though he wouldn't have been who they'd want, if you see what I mean. You know, his connection with Chelsea, his style of play, but they were open to to accept what it takes for success. Whereas I don't really think Arsenal fans were, were ready for Emery at all and were picking holes in the way he spoke and the way the players behaved. And I, I just I just think it was the, the wrong place at the wrong time for someone who had has a great, great record where he's been before. And he was in danger of being seen as, in this country at least, being seen as, ah, you know, who's he? But um, so I like the fact he's come back to the Premier League and come to a club which are ready for him and the players as far as we can tell as as Gregor pointed out seem to embrace his his energy actually I mean I think that's what he has he has 
an openness and an energy. Again, I'd make a contrast with Comte. I feel Emery will take take you know responsibility for things that go wrong, things and play down his role in things that go right. He's he seems a thoroughly decent, committed coach, and yeah, his track record is one of where it clicks for him. He gets a lot of loyalty, both from the players and the fans, and they can steamroller. So I do expect them to climb the table. Um, yeah, and I am pleased for him. He does seem incredibly likeable. Chelsea, three wins in their last 10 games in all competitions. They're without a victory in five Premier League away matches. It comes after their draw at Nottingham Forest. Um, they have now only won successive league games once under Graham Potter since he was appointed on the 8th of September. They're in eighth position, but now seven points behind Manchester United, who are fourth. And and this one might come down to injuries, might come down to missing players like we were talking about Spurs a few moments ago. But it's a lacklustre Chelsea team. There was no energy in that second half. In fact, Nottingham Forest, credit to them, they had all the energy, uh, they had all the intensity and you almost felt like the goal was going to come and who knows, maybe the win with it too. In the end, you feel like Chelsea ha- hang on. Uh, Morgan Gibbs-White could have scored one of the goals of the season, for example. But um, it was a head-scratcher, I think, Gregor. I just don't see what Chelsea are right now. Yeah, I mean, the, Henry Winter wrote in his, in his report today about the kind of, there seemed to be a lack, in, lack of identity and I think that's true. I think, you know, Chelsea over the years, we said this when, when Potter, we had this, this kind of debate when Potter got the job over the years there's just been a winning machine they've had strength power a kind of I don't know someone with a bit of edge and it's all about getting the three points in the dugout and this is clearly a huge step change for them and although it started fairly positively it's it's they're on a pretty chastening run at the moment and as you say the, the main thing that's lacking is sort of energy and bite Forrest looked hungrier they looked like they had more desire they also had more attempts on goal they you know for all the the possession that Chelsea had they didn't really create an awful lot they had, they had a kind of chance with uh Aubameyang at the back post at the very death but you know Forrest were kind of holding on for the last 10 minutes which is which is natural but really uh it's Forrest who 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 could have won this game and I thought Nottingham Forest were were excellent this has been a little while in the making now actually in terms of I think really you can trace it back to their to their four 0 defeat against against Leicester in October, and the change of shape. And since then they're just conceding drastically fewer goals. Look much more compact with the back four and and the three in front of them. I thought Ryan Yates was outstanding. You know, again, if you look at the players he's playing against in Chelsea's midfield, and he he was a real menace. You know, he was having having a bit of you know snapping at the ankles of Mason Mount or uh, Zakaria had a few kind of you know head to heads with. That's the kind of thing Chelsea are missing. Let's be honest. That's that's what they don't really have at the moment. They don't have that that bite. I don't think. You know, it's hard to see. Uh, it's hard to see where it's coming from. They just don't look. They don't look like the same sort of confident, sort of imperious force on the pitch anymore. And that might be down to you know personnel in terms of a few players who are missing. But I, I don't know. It just seems like a, a very different Chelsea, and we knew this was going to happen. I think we knew this. This is going to be. There was going to be a transition, but we also knew that Graham Potter has to pick up results and enough results, enough positive results for people to continue to buy into what you know the changes that Chelsea are going through. And at the moment, he's not. He's going to have to. He's going to have to change things. He's going to have to, you know, 
and had to turn around pretty quickly. Uh, Chelsea have to be challenging for the top four, and you know he said that his job's safe if he if he don't make it, but they've got to be close. I think for there the are fans two to stay on side too. Sorry, Gregor. I think there are two two problems. One is Chelsea for so long were reliant and devastating because of their wing backs or full backs, whoever played wide. So Reese James, Chilwell, they would get in the crosses and they provided, I don't know, something that was really hard for opponents to deal with. And they haven't got that. So as a unit, as a group, they're having to absorb them not being there and they they just haven't got replacements for them. And the second thing is Potter, what do we know about Potter? Potter's been very good throughout his career at taking underdogs, unfancied clubs and forging a way for them to exceed expectations. This is not what Chelsea are. So you come into Chelsea and that's what you're good at. It's a very specific thing coming into a club of Chelsea's size and cost and track record and near relentless trophy winning, let's face it. You know, they're in finals most of the time. They're challenging most of the time. And when they haven't been, whoever's in charge gets the boot. So it's just it's just almost polar opposite of what Potter can achieve. I'm not trying to say what Potter has as a coach is not good. I think he's obviously an exceptional coach, but he's it's that whole sense of, it's almost like when anyone ever takes over at PSG, you, you think, yeah, but can they cope with the egos and the specific problems that go with being at a club like PSG with their desperation to win the Champions League and having spent too much money and going for big names over what's needed in the team. It's, it's a bit like that in that you think, well, Potter's a great coach, but is, is he the sort of person that can handle an environment which is so used to finding a clockwork way to win? Will he have the time to pare it all back and rebuild? And at the moment, I think he's caught in that trap where you don't want to make too many tweaks or changes because the results really will suffer. Oh, and wanting to prove that he can coach and change things and evolve things. And then I said there were two things, there are three things. There are far, The third thing is there are far too many players who are reliable, but they're old and they're slow. And I just think Cesar Aspilicueta, for example, is a hero amongst Chelsea fans. You know, he's been there so long and he's the captain and you can't, I honestly don't think I've seen a match where he hasn't given his all, but he shouldn't be playing in a team of Chelsea's calibre anymore. He's just too slow and he's embarrassed too often. But this is what, and it's just weird to me that a club the size of Chelsea are forced into that position. So I, I, I think it's an unbalanced team. And Thiago Silva still makes an amazing, clever interception every single game he plays. But it's... It, I think overall, the sense that you have to compensate for the fact that he isn't as fast as he used to be will affect the the back line. There's too much sort of having to cope, having to make do, which which isn't 
isn't that what we expect from Chelsea? And it's not as if they've just suddenly been bought by someone who hasn't got any dosh. They've got loads of dosh and they will spend dosh. It's just a question of knowing how to. Because they're, again, they've just all they've been so used to just buying what they need and not needing to care about the future. Their future is sorted because they have an amazing academy system and they will always have young players coming through. And that's still arguably the, arguably the best academy in the country. But but there's no romance about it. So if they need to sign someone expensive, they will. They go out and get it. And that's that's a formula that's worked under a previous owner who was would put success before everything. And now we've got this strange mishmash of new ownership, which is supposed to want a long-term project with a manager who's very good at all the things that Chelsea don't need him to be good at. So it just it just feels to me like uh, you either try and copy what went before, other, and that's pointless. Otherwise, why, why would you appoint Potter for that reason? Or you allow the team to fail and then grow again. And I don't think anyone's prepared to do that either. So they're in no man's land, basically. I'm not somebody who wants to write off Graham Potter in any way, shape or form. I think he should be given time. You know, there's no point, as Alison said, there's no point in appointing him unless you, you give him time to, to do what he does best. But he will know as well as anyone that you have to you have to attain a certain level of performance and results for you to be given that time. And, you know, this is a big week. We've got back-to-back games against Manchester City and one in the FA Cup. So if it goes badly, then I think the noise and the pressure will start to spike a little bit more and that's what he doesn't need. So he really doesn't need. So I think this is a big week for Graham Potter and for Chelsea and and he's going to need to, we're going to need to see something, some more, I keep using that word, bite and sort of desire and energy and all the things that, you know, combativeness that, that that we're used to seeing from Chelsea teams and we've not really seen for a number of weeks now. It is one of those, you watch them and kind of think, have his methods taken hold yet? And I'm not sure. But also he, he you know, in terms of the size of club that he's at and the comments that were made when he went there over whether he would be ready for a, a club of that magnitude, he doesn't yet have that credit in the bank with a top tier football club, with their group of fans, with players as well that will give him that time for those methods to take hold if he's not getting results. He will very quickly go from a manager who he all thought was brilliant at Brighton to one that people will start saying, is he yet ready for the top level? So he needs to start getting results soon. 15 points from 10 Premier League matches in charge. Not really good enough for a Chelsea boss. But I've got to say, when it comes to Nottingham Forest and Steve Cooper... You know, maybe his methods are beginning to take with his squad. I know he's been at the club a lot longer. The players, of course, haven't all those signings. I think he's now beginning to find out who are the players that he can trust. Their second half performance was excellent. Now, two defeats in nine in all competitions. Gregor, you start to feel like they are finding their feet this season. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I say, that, that the shape change has been huge. That's been, as you say, a kind of uh, culmination of of assessing the players, the the, the huge uh, number of players that Forrest signed over the summer, kind of settling upon a system and, generally speaking, individuals who 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 fit that shape best and provide a platform because they're conceding far too many goals to have any chance of surviving. And I was reading since that change, they've conceded uh, 0.73 fewer goals per 90 minutes, and that's even with a 5-0 hammering at the hands of Arsenal in there. So... That's, you know, we're getting close to a goal a game fewer since the change shape, and you know, there's been there's just been some real 
I think Willie Bolly is someone who's st- stepping up to be an important signing at the heart of defence. I think we're seeing more and more from from Froiler in midfield. Gibbs White has grown into the kind of number ten role with two wide forwards, you know, in advance of him. That he's he's someone who's, who's really good and creative on the ball in terms of getting on the turn and slipping in Brennan Johnson with his pace or a one year it was yesterday, but it's often been Dennis as well. So, and you know, we have to see Serge Aurier. He was one of the signing two you wouldn't say was probably Steve Cooper's. He's he's always getting to the point where he's been quite open about the fact that. You know, and new players were arriving at the training ground, and he said, "Okay, well, here's another one." And I think Serge Aurier would have been in that category, but he's 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 uh, he's performing really well for Forest at the moment. So, look, my one reservation about this sort of uptick for Forest is that they still have the same owner, and who knows what's going to happen in the next month? Whenever Steve Cooper is being asked about, does he want to, you know? Is it going to be a busy January? He's saying yes, uh, and they just have to do it better. They have to they have to sign players who are going to go straight in and improve the starting eleven, rather than a huge volume of players that are going to give them a bit of depth, but not necessarily. You know, if you if you look at the players they signed in the summer, have there been really any big standout stars? Gibbs White is becoming someone who might be that, you know, one might fit into that category, but not really. I think I think Bolly's someone who's who's stepping up. It's, it's taking time. They don't have time. They need someone who's possibly has Premier League experience to come in. And I think probably signing a goal scorer, and I would possibly sign another central defender too. They don't want to be signing ten players. They want to sign a couple who are going to really improve the the, the starting eleven. Uh, but as I say, with Nottingham Forest, you never know what's around the corner. Gregor, if you were if you were the manager. And you were given the option of no signings at all in January, or twelve. What would you What would you take? Zero all day. Exactly, exactly. He just needs a period of stability, doesn't he? Absolutely, yeah. It's you know you've he's had to welcome and sort of assess. I think it's twenty two players, and you know he, he's making all the positive noises about them all being good, you know, good characters and stuff. But it's impossible to keep everyone happy in that regard, and it also upsets the players. Who are still there? Who 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 got first promoted to the Premier League? So it's been, you know, a, a, no mean feat to get Forest kind of on a sound footing now. It's taken a long time, but now they're on this sound footing. I think they just need a couple of additions. That you know, I think one more defender and, and a bit more quality in the in the final third because they still aren't scoring a lot of goals. That's the truth. And you know, as, as they're looking more solid, but they they need to. They just need a little bit more in both boxes, I think, actually. But Steve Cooper is, you know, he's doing an impressive job, all things all things told, I think. I know we've moved on to Nottingham Forest, but I just feel, given that we basically slaughtered Conte, I just feel, it, I think we're being, showing favouritism to Potter because he's English. And <laughs> I just wondered what we thought of the way Potter speaks after, a, after they've dropped points. He doesn't speak like... A manager who feels it's devastating, and you know, club of Chelsea stature shouldn't be doing that. It's all very measured and ho hum, and it doesn't sound that there's no urgency there. There's no sense of I don't know. I just feel like Chelsea have dropped down the pecking order in terms of cachet since he took over because he doesn't he doesn't act like 
they should be winning all the time. And that, isn't that part of it when you're the manager of a really big club? I've said this, I said this, I think, after his, you know, one, one of his first few games, how jarring that was to see him in front of, you know, he's saying, I think they drew, I can't remember if they drew with someone, you know, fairly lowly, maybe in Brentford. And he's saying, I, th- I thought we played quite well. You know, he come, that's the kind of tone he strikes. And look, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's actually quite, it's, part of it's refreshing. You know, he just, he just analyzes the game fairly dispassionately and that's the way he is. So I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just a huge change. It's such a massive step change for Chelsea and such a contrast to what we've seen in the past from, from you, know, a, a, you know, a long list of, of Chelsea managers who are just winners. That's what they're brought, brought to the club to be. So, yeah, absolutely, Alison. I completely back you. I think every time I see him with a camera in front of him, it's it still jars me to see what a, a kind of a different character they have now as manager. I, I think part of it for Graham Potter is he doesn't want to create panic because I think he's one of those players, excuse me, one of those coaches that just basically says, you know, it's process driven. If we do our jobs, if we get on the training pitch, if we work hard, things will improve. So there isn't a point to being extreme with your responses to every single fixture. It's a long-term thing. It's almost like he wants to get that message out that, you know, time is is necessary. So I can understand why he's a little bit, you know, if some people think he's a little bit less intense than other, other top managers. But also, I do think there is a sense with him that he doesn't want to feel like he has to change for Chelsea. You know, they've hired him because of what he's done before, because of the person that he is, because of the coach that he is. And and maybe he currently doesn't feel like he should be a different Graham Potter because he's moved to Chelsea. Chelsea shouldn't change him. But actually, I think that would be a mistake. I'm not saying that he should change his character or even his demeanour massively, but um, but I think he needs to understand that he, just like a player moving to Chelsea would, needs to go up a gear. You know, it, it is that level of expectation. There is that level of performance that's needed now Maybe this is the first win now club that he's ever managed. In fact, win every week club that he's ever managed. And um, he does need to switch his mind into that. You know, every time you drop points at Chelsea, it's not necessarily a disaster, but you should be pretty angry about it. I mean, if Antonio Conte at Spurs is fuming over their points dropped, you you need to be unhappy with your players. You need to set that level, that high level of um, performance and expectation and it's been interesting, you know, we've been taken behind the scenes with several managers in the Premier League, thanks to the Amazon All or Nothing series. We've been able to see, even with Mikel Arteta, who had a struggling Arsenal team, where he set that level, where he set the high bar for them and, and where they've now gone to. And I think people are looking on, almost thinking, when is this manager going to set that high bar? When is he going to say a draw in Nottingham Forest isn't acceptable, well, no I matter how I, we've played? Uh, I see that's the one bit where I would I would disagree. I think if we saw him beside, behind the scenes, he will set that bar as high as anyone. I just think this is his demeanor on, you know, uh, publicly. I see. Um, I it, think, but it matters. Know, I've, I've, I've said this before, though. I've said this before with Potter. I know, of course it matters. Of course it, it matters. matters. Yeah, I agree, but I don't think it's fair to say that he's not setting the bar as high as other managers, you know, behind the scenes. No, but training, I'm talking about for the, I'm talking about for the football club. The bar is set for the football club in public. Yeah. Not well, behind the scenes. The football club's bar is set in public. We are talking about Graham Potter and his demeanour because of how he speaks in public. The fans only well, see Graham Potter... Because of the results. No, no, no. But the fans see Graham Potter in public. 
So if your manager, just like we're talking about Antonio Conte deflecting, if your manager is basically saying after a draw in Nottingham Forest, a couple of things to work on, wasn't our night type stuff, that is the bar for Chelsea Football Club as a whole. That's what the fans are looking on and saying, hold on a minute, we expect more. So it, it, do, it does matter. There's no point saying all oh, the players will be told something different behind the scenes. Why, why would it be so drastically different behind the scenes to what he says publicly? Like, I, you know, I know that there are managers that play games and stuff like that. But do you think Graham Potter's doing that? You think he's working the media, but behind the scenes, the players are getting absolutely torn to shreds? I'm not sure, but I don't know what you think. No, I don't think he's tearing, tearing people to shreds. I think, you know, I've when he got the job, I spoke to a player who, who, who'd who uh, played for him at Ostersons and he, he told me a story about one game where the, um, I think the, it was not long after their Arsenal kind of Europa League clash and I think it was towards the start of the season and they lost to a team that was just, who'd just been promoted and he got them in the next day and and they watched the they watched the video and they you know analyzed it and stuff and they went out to expect training as normal and he he told them that they hadn't worked they hadn't you know worked hard enough basically they hadn't hadn't reached the right standards in that regard so there was no balls and he he made them run with a whistle in his mouth basically like doing doggies and he didn't tell them how many he was they were going to do and it was like you you kind of gave up mentally in this in this game you've got to keep going you guys have got to keep running until I tell you to stop and I'm not going to tell you how long that's going to be. So I think he's got a side in him that there's no doubt he's got, there's no way he's going to get to the, the level he has without having a steely side. Uh, for whatever reason, he feels that the best approach is to be, to present a calm exterior. And I'm sure he does that majority, overwhelming majority of the time in front of the players too. And it's it's gotten where, he's, where he is today. So I don't think we, I, I honestly don't think we should be critical of it. I just think we should see, we should look at it and and sort of acknowledge that this is a massive change for Chelsea, and that I, I just think he's got to he's got to get enough positive results for him to be given the time to do to do to do the job he wants to do. And at the moment, he's coming perilously close to to not doing that. But at Ostersunds, yeah. the players would have looked up to him and felt that they were getting an, an elite progressive, ambitious young coach and have accepted it. Whereas he's taken over from a manager in Tuchel who was demonstrably annoyed by even good things from the touchline. I mean, you know, they'd, they'd score a goal and he'd be going ballistic because hadn't been there'd been a mistake in the build-up or something. I mean, he was so, so emotionally demanding of the players. I just don't see how if he did that tactic with the Chelsea players following this draw with Forrest, that they would respond the same way as the group of players from Ostersunds, to be honest. Okay, Chelsea wrapped up, Spurs wrapped up, two positive uh, results for Nottingham Forest and uh, for Aston Villa as well. And plenty more to bring you on the game podcast. We will round up some of the big other stories. Uh, We'll discuss the top of the table as well, of course, that Premier League title race. Some of the other clubs towards the bottom of the table that had positive results this weekend. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, Uh, Hit that notification bell. Also hit subscribe if you can, and you will not miss an episode. Stay with us. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Right, let's get a quick update on the Premier League title race, which I think might happen pretty much every week at this point in time, because it feels like we're getting to the two-horse race, blow-for-blow part of the season, if you like, where it's Arsenal and Manchester City reflecting on one another's results each and every week. You know, every time one drops points, there you go. The other team's going to win the league and we all start talking about, well, could it happen and vice versa. But at this point in time, the result's very much going uh, in Mikel Arteta and Arsenal's favour. They are now seven points clear after a 4-2 win at Brighton. Manchester City were held at home by Everton. Interesting article that you can read on the Times app right now. Gary Jacob writing eight reasons why Arsenal can win the Premier League. I thought this weekend Martin Erdegaard was sensational. I'm sure you all did as well. He inspired the victory. In his last 13 league appearances, the 24-year-old Norwegian has been involved in 12 goals, which has left some saying that he is the best player in the Premier League right now. So that's what I wanted to ask you about. How good is Erdegaard? He's certainly on current form one of the best players. I wouldn't say he's the best, but he's he's kind of taken... He seems to have taken on more responsibility this year in terms of the way he's, he drives Arsenal forward. And some, you know, I don't just mean that in like... He, he, there were a couple, of moment, a couple of moments in the game against Brighton where he did drive forward and kind of... Know, incisive runs but it's also just taking responsibility getting on the ball moving it quickly and sharply and being that link player that Arsenal really need between front and midfield and he's in outstanding form some of his little moments of skill he's a beautifully poised player and you know his balance and his his calmness on the ball that little drag back and little slip through from Mart- Martinelli was was sublime and yeah I think also we have to say his 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 pass his assist for the 
for the for Martinelli's goal, I think it was. It, that was just otherworldly as well. It was <laughs> it was kind of I don't know, like a little spin shot. It was it was strange. It was a weird a weird contact he got in the ball. It was you know su- such a kind of cut um, that the ball kind of spun through and almost held up in, in Martinelli's path. It was beautiful. Beautiful assist. So yeah, he's been outstanding, absolutely. But I think if you look across this Arsenal team, we're not seeing anyone who's playing below par. We're not seeing anyone who's like a weak point, a weak link. And I thought Nketiah was going to come in and like I've still maintained that Arsenal should sign a striker, but he's come in and been been excellent in, in, in the two games that he's he's played since since Jesus' injury in the World Cup. You know, there's one interesting part and in, uh, point in, in Gary Jacobs' piece was that Arsenal have made the fewest changes uh, to the starting eleven of all top flight clubs this season. You know, I, I think I think beyond this starting eleven, we we've spoken about Arsenal having more kind of a bit more strength and depth this season, but the players they've signed and the players that who are on on real form this season, I think it is a step down behind them. Uh, so they have to have a stroke of fortune as well with injuries this season. And I know they're not going to, you know, they're playing in the Europa League, they're going to be able to make changes where, whereas other, you know, their competitors are going to have to, are going to be playing their full strength teams in the Champions League. But they're going to need a big stroke of fortune, I think, to to keep everyone fit. And look, all teams do when they, when they, when they win, win, win trophies, win silverware, they, they very rarely do so with a, a depleted team. But there are a few, few areas of the pitch, I think, if Arsenal lose were to get a few injuries in the in, in the second half of the season, it would be a big step down in the kind of quality behind them. But it's eminently possible that this this team, with the addition of a striker, I think, now are capable of winning the Premier League. That's uh, the first time I've said that, but I think it's true. I think they're playing as I say, there's no one no there's no weak link. And if they have a with a fair wind, it's it's quite possible because they are they are purring at the moment. One reason for highlighting Odegaard isn't just that he's getting nine out of ten every every week, and he's um, a joy to watch. I think he's illustrative of what a good coach Arteta is or has become. Because do you remember when Odegaard joined? It was like there was like all this. Oh, you know, he's he's not really coped very well with that weight of expectation in his youth and. Oh, it didn't really work at Real Madrid, and he he doesn't really cope well with um, you know, he's obviously got talent, but does he cope with the big stage and all this sort of? Thing. It was very negative, and he didn't look like he was an amazing player when he first started. But Arteta kept saying, you know, he needs his confidence rebuilt, and he has such great innate ability and a wonderful character will will make it work. And you thought, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But, I mean, the fact that Arteta has stuck with him and built him back up, it's hard sometimes being a wonder kid and then everyone expecting you to set the world alight. You need time to get to know your the coaches and your teammates and the fans and the system and the style of play of the league. And it's been lovely to watch a player grow like that actually and not only develop but also develop in a team that stands a reasonable chance of winning the title that's what you don't see very often you know uh, titles are often won because a team can afford to buy in the missing link whether it's Virgil van Dijk or Erling Haaland or whoever, you you know, if you've got a lot of money, you know what you need, you buy it, and then you get some success, and that's that. 
this is different. This is completely different. This is a player that, I mean, honestly, think back. People were saying, oh, Arsenal taking a bit of a risk. Do they really want to, you know, sign him permanently? Oh, I don't know, don't know. It, he has blossomed before our eyes and now plays with such maturity. It's hard to remember that he didn't often do much in a match and you felt that you just didn't know if he was going to be one of those players that might have been, could have been, should have been. And I think, I think if Arsenal were to win the title, that would be the story, the story of the season. In the same way as when Leicester won the title, it was it was because of Angolo Kante playing the sort of football we hadn't seen before from one individual. And look what you know. He went then went on won the title with someone else because they saw that. It's like it's a really such an important individual, and it seems weird to say it, doesn't it? Because it, we're talking about a team game and. Arsenal's balance and the fact that they don't have big egos. But that's the other thing about Erdegaard. It doesn't strike me as he's he's not arrogant in the least. He just just has that eye, that vision, which brings everybody into play, knits everything together in a very unassuming manner. So I'm very impressed. He's also playing in a you know a far more kind of highly functioning team this year. You have to say that. And I was just looking around at their team and thinking. You know, Martinelli has suffered with with injury problems for such a long time. He's staying fit and he's been on fire. Same about same with Partey for a lot of his Arsenal career. He's so important, but he's staying fit. You know, Zaka is is getting there's a kind of newly newly of life playing slightly more advanced. And the players that we you know that Alison referenced about kind of game changing signings have been Zinchenko and Jesus. And even when they've been absent now, I think just sort of. The whole is, you know, the the improvement of the the collective is sort of raising raised standards across the board. If you know what I mean, it's, you know, Zinchenko. It was spoken about earlier in the season that Zinchenko and Jesus brought a kind of a different sort of winning mentality, and that's spread. But also just the sort of raised the heightened performances have kind of spread throughout the team as well. And even when they're absent, the 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 rest of the players are still kind of main, maintaining those standards. So. I don't. I just always have this nagging feeling that it's slightly more fragile for Arsenal because of that step down in quality behind their best twelve or thirteen players, and the fact that I looked at Manchester City's kind of runs in the in the second half of the season over Pep Guardiola's tenure. They won eighteen of nineteen games when the year that of their last nineteen games, the year that they tipped uh, Pep Liverpool to to the title by a point. They regularly, basically annually, win twelve in a row, fourteen in a row. They they just they find something. So Arsenal, you know, Gary Jacob went through the points points count as well this um, in the first, you know, so far this season, and they've got forty three points from the first sixteen games. So you know, if they maintain this this kind of points per game, there's still a chance that City would tip would would pit them in their kind of in their uh, their points holes over recent seasons, so they, there's no room for error. Still, this is Arsenal. It feels like Arsenal at their peak. Uh, I might be wrong. They might be able to maintain it, but if they if they slip off slip off even a little bit, I think City will be there to to take advantage. But it's not really been Manchester City at their peak. I think that's the point. I mean, a draw with Everton um, at home as well. For me, I think there's a little bit of. And I've said this from the start of the season, like a strange complacency, not necessarily with Manchester City, but with the football world as a whole, 
that once Liverpool were underperforming, that's it. Manchester City have won the title. And obviously, Arsenal performing at such a high level and Manchester City are yet to go over the, you know, the white line and prove that they are the better side so far this season, that um, it, it leaves a huge opportunity for Arsenal to win the title. I just think there's a little bit of us watching Manchester City just kind of sleepwalking towards, oh, we just thought we would win it. We just thought it would click into place. We just, you know, we just, that's what we do, as you just outlined, Gregor. Oh, we just, we just go on these massive winning runs. Like I'm, to say I'm disappointed with Manchester City is maybe the wrong word, but um, you, you just think that they would be putting away teams like uh, Everton in the past um, quite consistently. And, and maybe they're still doing that. Maybe this is a one-off result, but um, I, cert- I, I I do almost think, and I know it's a weird one, that Erling Haaland scored again. Of course he did. But, but having him up front in terms of the constant dominance that City have had before of the ball, he kind of takes away from that by the fact that he doesn't touch the ball that often. And yes, I've criticised Manchester City in the past for basically having six midfield players who just pass the ball around them, not having enough of a goal-scoring threat. So I'm not going to reverse my my opinion completely, but um, but I but I do certainly think they're more of a Premier League side, more of a, an English team with Erling Haaland up front, maybe a little bit more readable. Maybe not more stoppable, but um, but I think teams do get a get a measure of, you know, if you can stop them from getting the ball into Haaland, you negate their attack hugely now, despite the fact that they've got so many good players. And I think last season, season before that, we were talking about, well, anyone can hurt you. Any one of those front six, they'll just keep rotating. Eventually, someone will pop up with a chance. We were just concerned that they weren't putting those chances away. But actually, as great a player as he is, and the fact he's, the fact is he scores every single week, Haaland, he's virtually impossible to stop. But tactically, are Manchester City a more readable side? Is that hurting them this season? Yes, it is, a bit. I, I mean, I think this game against Everton proved your point, Hugh, because Everton decided they would, they, but they almost refused to be intimidated by Haaland. So you had this battle between him and Godfrey, which I, I mean, you can't say it worked completely, but it did cause Haaland to get emotional and he behaved the way I've not really seen him behave on a pitch before, geeing up the crowd, shouting at the crowd, shouting at Godfrey, shouting at everybody and just acting as if, it sort of like almost brought them down a level. Like it allowed that allowed Everton to think we're in a, a proper battle now. And if we believe we've got the guts for it, we can we can get something from this game. It was almost like they were they used to be too posh and now they've started going to a dodgy, dodgy pub around the corner and everyone thinks, oh, okay, you can compete with them. So it's it was a, a really strange strange one. I don't think at home City really have that against a team they're expected to win against. They don't have that oomph that sees them over the line. It's just there is too much passivity. There's too much sense of entitlement there. And when it got to be more of a battle, Haaland allowed it to be that in his demeanour it got to be more of a battle that gave Everton the sense that they could they could get something. So it's not just about tactically that City are different with him there. I think the sense that as you I think you said it didn't you an old fashioned old fashioned English 
team is is what they look like now, not not a sort of continental Barcelona type. So yeah, and and what what this result will show other teams is a yes, you don't have to be terrified of Haaland, and even if you are secretly, don't show it, rough him up a bit, you know, make him angry. It, I I thought. I thought it was quite, I don't know if it was accidental, but if it was deliberate, it was quite clever actually of Lampard to take that approach with them. And it was brave. This has been my problem when teams face City for a while now, is they're just not brave enough. They are def- they defer to them. They just think that oh, we can't compete with that. Best coach, too many expensive players. And also I think um, what you can do when you're preparing City is look at, actually look at who they've left out. And what's going on? And I think it would be quite easy for Everton to have been insulted by the lineup. Strange back line from City. What, we don't, not, not playing his best defenders. Is he resting them? Is he saying we don't need to play our best players against Everton? That might not have been what he was thinking. But if you, if I was in charge of Everton, I would say, look at that. That lineup is insulting us. Let's go for it. Let's battle. And that's what happened. Very quickly, Gregor. Do you think this relieves pressure? This result on on Frank Lampard? Absolutely. Every you know, every positive result, and he, and he needed one, alleviates the pressure a little bit. As I said uh, last week, you know, this is a, I think it's going to be a recurring question for much of the much of the season. I think it's, it's very very fine margins for about eight clubs at the bottom in the bottom half of the the Premier League, and Everton are very much one of them. But and it, it will go game by game like this. Every, every you know positive result will will kind of allow them to. Lampard and Everton just to breathe a little sigh of relief. I know that's you know it's it's only one point. It's not taking them clear of the bottom three, but it's it's a big point and an unexpected point. And it will be like that, I think, kind of game by game for Everton because they're I think they're in a relegation battle, uh, particularly unless they unless they do something about how few goals they concede. You know, we're talking about City there. It's still a, a dominant performance. Everton looked quite dangerous on the break. It, it, uh, at points of the and during points of the, the match, but they scored an absolute wonder goal after after Roger gave the ball away in midfield, really, really poorly, really sloppy, and Demari Gray finished, you know, magnificently. So it was a moment of you know real quality and class that that got them the point in the end, and I, I, they can't rely on that every week. So yeah, little get a moment of respite, but they they need to back it up now. Speaking about the relegation battle and pressure on managers, let's talk about David Moyes and West Ham United losing a fifth straight game in the Premier League for the first time since April of 2017. They were beaten 2-0 at home by Brentford. It's been reported that Moyes does have the backing of the club, but there is going to be a lot of noise if their league matches in the next three, Leeds, Wolves and Everton, go badly. Gregor, you watched this game. Do you get a sense that Moyes can survive this? It was a strange post-match uh, kind of press conference, in that Moyes was extremely sunny, and I think he has been for a number of weeks now. In that, you know, as the pressure is is ramping up, uh, he's still kind of trying to maintain this positive positive outlook. He's saying that he he said he thought they played really well, and I think in fairness they played very well uh, up until Brentford's goal, which came very much against the run of play. And they were he was right in that he said that they were sucker punched by kind of two look goals from two two throw-ins but the second one was embarrassing in, it, in its, its simplicity it was just a you know Zanka thrown on the halfway line Ivan Tony with space to hook the ball over the top for, for Josh De Silva to run onto and, and 2-0 just before half time 
and then it's a long way back. So West Ham played pretty well in the first half. They created chances. Dawson flicked one right narrowly wide of the post. Jared Bowen had a chance from close range. Emerson did. They created chances. They are creating chances. They just they can't put the ball in the back of the net. And Moises asked, you know, you're trying to you're trying to do. They changed he changed the shape a little bit. He he put Paqueta alongside Rice and dropped uh, Suchek, which is a bit more of an attacking sort of outlook. You know, you've tried you've tried everything and and you've lost five games in a row now. This what comes next? And he just said, I thought we played well today. So I don't think he knows what's next. He thinks that the kind of fine margins are going to go their way, but they're going to have to they're going to have to turn very soon because they've got three huge games against um, I think Leeds, Leeds Wolves and Everton next, which is going to define his West Ham future, I think, and could possibly go a long way to defining their their season. I wonder. I wonder if Moyes has got this sunniness that you describe, Gregor, because he he's just convinced there are three worse teams than West Ham in the Premier League this season, and he's probably right, isn't he? he is, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, they're not. They're they're a decent squad. He they have played well. I think he feels it's been a combination of quirky defeats, results that you know could have gone either way. Uh, they're not abject. They don't have an. I don't think they yet have an awe of a team that's on the slide, particularly. I mean, early in the season when results didn't go well, though, people were still saying, "Oh, there's a you know, lot, there's a lot there. You know, it's a lot that's good there." So I don't. I mean, and I also get the sense that the club would rather not sack him. I mean, they might, but I'd rather, they'd rather not. I so agree. It, it, they could. I, I think there could be there could be a turning point quite soon. Yes, but it, it needs to be soon because those three games, as I say, are are, are huge games. No, absolutely. If they, if they come out of those without you know any or many points, then it's going to look very difficult for them. Yeah, totally agree. I think David Moyes, West Ham season possibly in the next three games uh, will be decided in terms of their fate. Uh, maybe not in terms of relegation, but whether we're going to see them be a team that that you know makes its way up the Premier League in, in very short order by winning matches and putting a great run together or one that is going to be right in that relegation battle until the end because um, they need to start picking up wins, most importantly, not just points, to pull away from that situation. And they're not too good to go down. We've said that about West Ham before and I, I don't feel it with this squad. It needs to start clicking for them very, very soon. Let's talk about a side that maybe many people thought was going to be in the relegation battle. Fulham are seventh in the Premier League, back-to-back wins since the resumption of the Premier League. This time they beat Southampton by two goals to one. Alexander Mitrovic, one of Alisson's boys, now has 10 goals in his previous 13 Premier League games. It's a fifth straight league defeat for Southampton as well. That leaves them bottom and, in my opinion, looking set for relegation. We'll come to them in a moment. But, Alisson, you were there. How impressive was Mitro? How impressive were Fulham? How happy are you? Well, Mitro wasn't impressive particularly, and that's what made the victory uh, all the better for Fulham because they, I mean, he wasn't bad, Mitrovic. He missed a penalty. He's a great target man. I mean, he just holds the ball up really well and he bullies people and he's a great character, but he was just by far and away not his best match and he's still carrying this foot injury as well. But they, Fulham are not what they used to be. And it's all down to Marco Silva because you speak to any Fulham player and I know I know this is what happens. I know the politics of football. It is different at Fulham. They just go on and on about how much they love Marco Silva and what an amazing manager he is. And he allows them to play with freedom. He understands the individuals. He knows how to get the best from each individual as well as the whole. 
you know, he's somebody who has Premier League experience, but he's he hasn't been sort of parachuted in because of that. He's grown with the team through the championship win. And he's done that magic trick of making sure they maintain the confidence that you get from storming the championship and sort of dovetailing it to the demands of the Premier League, which is, and it's mainly about not being scared of it and just getting the best out of players. And it's almost like the players don't know they get they're, they're, that they're putting in more effort. It's really, really impressive. And he, and Marco Silva does not big them up. You know, he, st- he says it's still about survival, still about staying in the Premier League, when honestly, you could say they're in a reasonably good position to make European football. I mean, might not want conference, but I mean, they, they could easily qualify for some form of European football. And then that, and that is astonishing. It goes to show, you know, your destiny isn't always set in stone. This sort of yo-yo club tag they had, you can break free of it with a good manager. So it's they, they are impressive, but they didn't play that well, really. And it wasn't a great game against Southampton. But the, the, I would say one reason why you might be right, Hugh, that Southampton are in trouble is because they played very defensively. They played five across the back. They tried to play counter-attacking football, but they didn't quite have that belief in it. There's a fragility there at the heart of the team. They're far too young as a as a team, I think. They're inexperienced overall. You know, James Ward-Prowse sort of sticks out like a sore thumb in terms of maturity and scored a one, another another wonderful free kick. But he's not; he can't do it on his own. And there's this <laughs> down the whole of one side of today's newspaper. They list nine, <laughs> the ninety teams who took part in league football last for the whole of 2022, and at the there's only Chillingham and crew are worse than Southampton in terms of uh, points per game. I mean, it looks, it just looks awful. So <laughs> it's sort of, oh my goodness. And and then you've got to say, you know, is Nathan Jones the man to uh, solve this? And I have to say, I can't see any evidence of that. I'm sure he's a perfectly lovely person, but he's, he does lack charisma and experience. He has no Premier League experience and no Southampton experience. So I don't quite know what you think he's going to do. So they must be thinking in terms of next season and the championship and maybe building for that because they lack that sense of, you know, they're a big club, Southampton. They're great support. They shouldn't have got to this stage, but they're in it. And I can't see them getting out of it, really. We were asked to do some predictions for the second half of the season. And yeah, I mean, I sadly think that Southampton are going to go down. They've got the youngest team uh, in the in the Premier League. They've got a rookie goalkeeper who we all agree is like a, will be a very good goalkeeper, but he's had a few difficult moments in, in recent weeks. Uh, they've got pretty much a rookie defence and they've now got a rookie manager at, at Premier League level. You know, I've spoken before, I, I think Nathan Jones is... Is a really good manager and he's done he did great things at, at Luton Town, but it was a bold, brave appointment to throw him into a relegation battle in the Premier League with the youngest team in the Premier League. So they need to do something in January, I think, or else they're down. And a big game against Forest next, which you'll be at. Huge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's it's gonna be a massive game. It's Southampton, you know, it could be a bit of a gap opened up if Forest were to win that one. And you know a lot of these games between the teams who are who are competing against each other at the bottom of the table, 
uh, are going to be pivotal. Um, as you know, we spoke about West Ham, who they're facing in the coming weeks, and this is very much a game that could be kind of season defining. You know, it could also lift Nottingham Forest out of the out of the bottom three. So it's it's a huge game for both teams. And but if Southampton lose it, then you know it's it's going to be it's it's going to be a tough ask for them anyway. But uh, if they lose that one, then I think you know even belief will begin to drain away early. You know, early in Nathan Jones's tenure, and he's got a. He's got a big task on his hands. There ought to be a law against a goalkeeper being 20 years old in the Premier League. That is ridiculous. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, listen, there are issues at Southampton. Um, Bazunu's form needs to improve. He's not the only one, though, to be perfectly honest. Tough, tough situation for Nathan Jones. I think we'll be keeping a close eye on them uh, in the coming weeks. Anyway, Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd, thank you very much. Happy New Year once again. Thank you all of you for listening. We will be back very, very soon reviewing the next round of Premier League matches. Of course, we've got the FA Cup to come as well. So stay with us on the game podcast. Make sure you're subscribed. It's the times.co.uk forward slash the game. Download the Times app for more of our great journalism as well. And we'll see you very soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.